on one side, there's man up, tough mm. up. And one side, there's be soft, be vulnerable, but not too soft and not too manly. There's a very narrow space to live in. And I think that's the zeitgeist of our times for a lot of men. It's being forced into this expression that's culturally okay or throwing all of the great things out of being strong and masculine and all of the great things out of being soft and masculine. Mm. We do transformational combat and it's fighting with love. If you take that away from a man, the avenue to express powerfully through his competition to pit his skill and to pit his strength if you see that and like, oh, those men are fighting, that's toxic. You strip something from him that has him living less in the world. Similar to the way that you can't selectively numb emotions. If I'm numbing my sadness, then I'm going to be numbing my happiness. Mm. It's the same thing for what it is to be fully expressed as a man. If I have no outlet to use my strength and my power and my force, then I'm going to have much less capacity to feel my softness and my vulnerability and my authenticity. It's just going to be numbed. Welcome to the Heart of Man podcast a podcast for any man seeking to live in alignment with his deepest core and lead a life of profound meaning and connection. I'm your host, Alex Lehman, and I'm here to empower you through transformative conversations, eye-opening insights, and practical wisdom. Join me now as we venture into the heart of man. Let's dive in. Welcome everybody to another episode at the heart of man. I'm thrilled to have James Maddenly with us here today. James is a coach and facilitator with over a decade of experience leading groups and guiding transformational experiences. Within his work, he leads in three distinct areas, helping couples reignite the passion they had at the beginning, but even better, supporting individuals to unveil their inner genius and superpower, and leading men's groups focus on helping men step into courage and love on each other with their fists using boxing and embodiment. I first met James at a three-day men's retreat I participated in. During our time together, he skillfully guided us into various different expressions through the use of boxing, embodiment practices, and partner exercises. Within our first few moments together, James emphasized the importance of fighting for our brother and not against him, speaking to the fine line of challenging each other from a place of support rather than attempting to bring each other down. What stood out for me when I first made contact with James was his ability to embody what I describe as the warrior poet, someone with a connection to his power and fierceness, but can also access his gentleness and receptivity. Within the retreat, we were consistently challenged to explore those edges of that spectrum to expand our capacity to move with agility in both. Personal favorite of this conversation came at the opening of the podcast, where James read out a poem he created, communicating the confusing messaging of who we are to be as men. And this was followed by a rich discussion addressing the challenges of men in our modern times. From there, we range into a wide array of topics such as keeping the spark alive with an intimate partner, even when the honeymoon phase has settled in, while leading from generosity and relationship is the path forward, and why attempting to seek a purpose is not the way, and what to do otherwise, and many more exciting subject matters. One more thing I'd like to communicate before we begin is that I admitted to James at the end of our conversation that I felt off while we were speaking. I noticed myself being in my head as if I couldn't get out of the way of myself. What was underneath it was the level of shame and pressure that I was carrying from some experiences that occurred on that same day. James openly asked me why I didn't communicate this within the podcast. And I shared that while I thought about it, I believed it would take away from the conversation and the value I wanted to provide. With his words of encouragement and my personal reflections, 
I recognize it would have been more valuable to share it. Now, why do I say that? Because that is what was most true in that moment. And addressing that would have been, in my view, an access point to connect to a more deep and alive conversation. I'm sharing this because I would like to take ownership of that. Anybody who knows me would know how much I love this podcast and how much I desire to make a meaningful experience for anybody listening. Moving forward, I'd like to give you my commitment to ensure deeper transparency, authenticity, and a willingness to be vulnerable. Thank you, everybody, and I deeply appreciate all of you listening. And now, let's dive into an uninterrupted conversation with James and I. Stand up, walk tall, be a man. Don't lay down when you can sit or sit when you can stand. That's it, bro. You know what's up. Eat that teaspoon of concrete and harden the fuck up. But also, be vulnerable and cry. Show your pain. The world is not your battlefield to tame. Open your heart. Speak to how you feel. It's your vulnerability that's brave. Your openness that's real. But not too much, you fucking pussy. Show them only the parts they should see. The strength, the power, the invulnerable, unscared, the six-foot cock, 20-inch biceps, and eight-foot beard. Mm. Your armor is worn for good reason. To take it off, treason. Forget about that guy. It's safe to feel here. Your inner world is to be celebrated, not feared. So open up and give yourself fully. Forget about being told to man up or that time you cried as a kid and got bullied. Exactly. You got to cover up. Protect yourself at all times. You're a man because of how much shit you can take and still stand. No. Open up. It's okay to cry. You're a man because of how much you show of what you feel inside. Be powerful. Be strong and handsome to boot. Be loving and caring. Maybe play the flute. Throw axes, kill beers, fight fights. Sing kirtan, drink a cow, enjoy vegan delights. Be strong, be soft, be open, be closed, hold it in, let it out. Don't be weak, let your fear show. You can do it, I know you can. It's easy, isn't it? Just be a man. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, it just hits right into the heart. And with that, I just want to welcome all the listeners to another podcast another episode at the heart of man. I have a very special individual coming here into the podcast today. Um, my friend, James Mattingly, he's a coach. He's a facilitator who leads groups and as well facilitates transformational experiences. Um, I met James a bit over a month ago at a three day men's retreat called warrior camp, where we're actually being guided to love on each other as men through our fists. <laughs> and that was an absolutely beautiful experience that I would love to get into with you. Mm -hmm. But first of all, James, I want to welcome you into the podcast. Thanks, Alex. It's, uh, it's great to be here. First of all, I, um, yeah, um, as mentioned before, you know, I asked you before we started rolling, if you can start off with this poem. And I wanted to hear what inspired you to create that poem and, um, you know, what does it speak to for you? Mm. Yeah. Um, I grew up in New Zealand, and New Zealand is a, is a lot like other places in the West, at least for young men. There was a real culture of machoism, and there was a real culture of, like that, that sentence in there, eat a teaspoon of concrete and harden the fuck up, was a, was a, a constant sentence in my youth. <clears throat> so anytime any kind of emotion was shown, it was like, there's not, it's totally not okay to feel. It's just, that's the message that I got since a young boy. It's not okay to feel. And yet there's this whole other side that I developed 
through self-development, through being an Ubud, through transformational processes that is really highlighting the value of being vulnerable, of being authentic. And it so often feels within me that there are these two warring sides going backwards and forth. So when I was sitting down and thinking about this, literally two voices within myself reflecting the two voices in culture, um, it just lent itself really well to the spoken word where they were being acted out almost. Yeah. I feel you communicated as well that dichotomy so beautifully. Mm. And, you know, there's, to me, those are kind of two poles that are consistently held at a particular tension. And I've been in both of those, right? But I think speaking to it in such a way where we have an awareness of both of those um, is definitely something I don't hear a lot of. And mm -hmm. what it speaks to for me is ultimately this emphasis around um, don't be too manly, you know, don't show too much of your masculine assertiveness, your power. But then as well, on the other hand, you know, we have the narrative, don't be too soft, don't be vulnerable, don't be a pussy, all of these things. And um, growing up with that narrative inside of me, um, I, I definitely had that embodied experience of walking on eggshells and, mm -hmm. and really not knowing how to be and who to be as a man. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because if you look at the space that's in between, so on one side, there's man up, tough mm -hmm. up. And one side, there's, you know, be soft, be vulnerable, but not too soft and not too manly. There's a very narrow space to live in. Mm. And I think that's the zeitgeist of our times for a lot of men. It's um, being forced into this expression that's culturally okay or throwing all of the great things out of being strong and masculine and all of the great things out of being soft and masculine. Mm. We just get stuck in this tiny little bandwidth in between. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm curious to hear if there has been a defining moment for you where you came into a deeper awareness of, you know, those two pain points and what ultimately guided you into a journey of perhaps disrupting some of the cultural narratives that we have been taught around being men. Mm. Many, <laughs> many, 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 many. Um, I think in a large part, the value, the understanding of what a healthy masculine is. So what I think of as a healthy masculine is being able to play all of the scales. So being able to being a really solid strength and power when needed, and able to bring a real softness and vulnerability when needed, but not being stuck on either side or in the narrow band with in between. Mm. For that to happen, I had to realize in my bones, I'd had the felt sensation of what the energy of healthy masculine was. Mm. And because I wasn't exposed to it, and because there wasn't a lot of mentors or guidance for it, um, it took me until my, I think, early 30s when a friend, a, a female friend of mine, took me to this workshop with a man named Eli Barin. Mm. And Eli is my longtime mentor now. And we, I can't even tell you what we did because I don't really remember. It's just different. Eli's very good at embodied exercises. So you do a bunch of things that seem really weird if you describe them. But I left the workshop and I was like, Oof, what is this thing that I feel? I felt so grounded and so in myself and not needing to pretend or smile or show up or do anything. I was just in myself. Mm. And it was so unfamiliar and so weird that I went and I think I bought Pringles and beer and went back to my room 
just got into bed and <laughs> numbed out because it was like, what? I don't know, what, I, don't, I don't know what to do with this thing. Right, right. right. It was but, so unfamiliar. And, it was so unfamiliar, yeah. but it felt so important. Mm. So that would be the first, I would say, cracking open of understanding in my body of how I identify healthy masculine. And then the all of the years and all the work afterwards is spending more time in that space. Yeah. I think there's a potency that I, I see and hear from exploring it from that lens of, you know, what is healthy masculinity? And then maybe as well on the um, flip side as well, exploring, well, what is unhealthy masculinity? And I think a big narrative that, you know, is, is very present around our cultural is, you know, the term of toxic masculinity, right? Where ultimately that framing doesn't necessarily allow much space from my experience to really um, explore what it truly means to be a man. But there's also a suggestion that, you know, being a man in itself is something rotten, right? Whereas, you know, the terming of healthy or unhealthy, um, it actually provides a bit more space to really explore um, perhaps other facets that we may have not been accustomed to or nor have been conditioned into. Yeah, 100%. I think if someone uses the word toxic, it's very much necessary to define exactly what they mean by that, hmm. traits that they mean by that, because the way it's often used throws the baby out with the bathwater. Mm -hmm. And it's left, um, it was an interesting email I once received from a guy that worked in the space, and the, the hitter really caught my attention. Um, why do I feel like I need to apologize for being a man? <laughs> right? I can relate to that, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, on the flip side, there's a lot of historical um, imbalance between men and women. So I get, I get the need for change yep. and what it be, means to be masculine, all of it cannot be bad because as soon as all of it's bad, all of the good goes too. Mm. You can't selectively numb one aspect. You can't say to a, a man, like we do a lot of fighting, right? We do transformational combat and it's fighting with love. Now, you can, if you take that away from a man, the, the avenue to express powerfully through his comp competition to pit his skill and to pit his strength, if you see that and like, oh, those men are fighting, that's toxic, you strip something from him that has him living less in the world. Mm. Similar to the way that you can't selectively numb emotions. You know, like if I'm numbing my sadness, then I'm going to be numbing my happiness. Mm. It's the same thing for what it is to be fully expressed as a man. If I have no outlet to use my strength and my power and my force, then I'm going to have much less capacity to feel my softness mm. and my vulnerability and my authenticity. Mm. It's just going to be numbed. Yeah. And we've kind of been cut out of that. And I think something that as well is very highlighted within the poem that you've offered uh, is that there's a narrative around it's never actually been safe for us to feel, mm. nor has it ever been safe for us to um, be in our power as well. And I think that is something that is not, you know, as highlighted or as, um, you know, seen. I'm curious to hear what are your thoughts on that? It's a total shock to most women in particular and to a lot of men that haven't thought about it, that we've never had a safe space to feel. Because if I think of myself uh, not so many years ago, even that word safe space was uh, kind of, yeah, of course I'm safe. Of course I feel safe to feel because it didn't even relate to my experience. What I didn't realize is that there were so many times that I was hiding and compensating and not speaking to my own fears and my vulnerability. 
And it's like they were two separate things. Over here, there's that safe, safe thing that other people need. Yeah. And over here, uh, the, the growing awareness of all the areas that I didn't feel comfortable in sharing my deeper thoughts and experience mm-hmm. without realizing that's what it was to not feel space. Mm-hmm. So our, my entire life and most men that I know have grown up in a culture that shuns um, tears, it shuns vulnerability, and it praises stoicism, and it praises typical masculine traits of pushing through. And it results in a in for most men are not even knowing that they don't feel okay hmm. to share something vulnerable. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I forgot your question. Yeah. I actually don't recall it myself as well, but I'm another curiosity that's present now is um has there been a defining moment that arose for you that made you realize that you actually didn't feel safe um, to feel nor to express or you know expose or reveal those aspects of yourself <laughs> there's so many let me give you two one old and one recent the older one is when I my first aspect of working in the transformational space being open to it is I like many other people came to Bali for a yoga teacher training going back over 10 years now and it was uh, kind of a kooky one it was really transformationally based and you got put in pods and those pods you spend more time with so there's 50 people in the training and you have a group of nine and you do extra activities with them and you speak to them and those of you that haven't done a month-long training week three is always the boiler point it's where everything's coming up it's a fertile ground but it's also a tumultuous ground and one of the exercises was to go and do his version my teacher daniel's version of the hot seat Mm. but this hot seat was one person sits in the seat and you get these eight people who on one hand haven't known you for a long time but also know you very deeply because of the nature of the training and they sit there and tell you what they don't like about you and you get to sit there with no response whatsoever so you just hear until they're done it's not one each they just keep on going and then you shake it off and then they tell you what they love about you. But it's it was really interesting because the reflection I got over and over again was you seem so practiced. If sound it feels like everything you're gonna say is planned and I feel like I don't know you. Mm. And if it one person had said that to me, it would have been really easy to shun. But when eight out of nine people are giving me the same reaction, right. it's like, oh my God. So that was that was literally the first realization that I built an armor of myself that I didn't even realize was an armor by preparing what I was going to say and what I was going to do to front in a certain way and that way avoid actually speaking to how I feel. Yeah. Right? So that's the more historical version. Today, so this is a constant work for me. Even today, I was with a, a good brother of mine, a good friend of mine, and he said something that... um really felt like I was being cut down from it. I actually don't think it was his intention. But he said something that was like that had me feeling and had me going into my head about what he'd said and what I was doing in my actions and stuck there. And in the past, I would have just dealt with that on myself. I'd be like, oh, it's okay, didn't mean it. Or I would find some way to get back at him or or whatever it might be. I, I just probably wouldn't have shown anything. And over time, I would have felt the pain of feeling less than less. Yeah. Now there's a choice. So this time I just went up to him and said, hey, what you said before really didn't feel good. Mm. 
and there was no attack from it. He didn't actually have to do anything at all. He didn't have to apologize to me. Like, mm -hmm. that's not my intention of saying anything. The entire win there is opening up my world, not collapsing and going, oh, I feel so crap, or not being like, fuck you, you said that thing, which are the two things, and yeah. not being, let's sit down and talk about our feeling. When you said this, I felt like, no, just being like, hey, I notice I feel distant from you, and you're my good brother. I want to feel close to you. What you said before really didn't feel good to me. Initially, when we may get into this work, we may not even recognize how we're um, ultimately protecting ourselves from revealing our emotions. The thing that I most see as well for myself is that regardless of the amount of work that I do, um, that the narrative of not expressing myself, not revealing myself and what's really happening at the core and uh, my vulnerabilities is still very deeply ingrained. And a part of me, I can definitely like relate to a sense of uh, a performative nature in me, let's say. Um, you know, I think that's definitely an element that I want to get into. But um, within our retreat, we, we spoke a lot about my uh, desire to not reveal my messy sides, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it definitely reminded me of that when I just, just heard that. So I, I wonder, to come back to the question, I wonder if that challenge around revealing or exposing your vulnerabilities ever gets easier or lighter, uh, but rather it's just there is more space in between that and you have more choice now available. I think it all comes down to choice. Mm. So step one is recognizing the process. There's a process going on and that I've separated from the moment. So everything's great and good. Somebody says something, throws me off center and I get stuck reeling in my head, mm. whether that's my mother, my girlfriend, my friend. For a long time, I wouldn't even notice that. I didn't realize that there was anything going on. I didn't realize I was hurt. And mm. instead the narrative be like, why did you say that? I could have said this. I went to the thinking of it without realizing that I was hurt and therefore thinking something. Mm. I got stuck in the logic. So once I realize it, that's the first step. The second step is taking a different option. Mm. Maybe that option is to do exactly the same thing. Sometimes it's wise not to speak up into the moment. There's a wisdom to that also. But then from there, there's a chance to say something and act in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what gets space. I don't think it gets easier I'll let you know in another 10 years. Yeah. Great. I look forward to hearing from you. I would love to get a little bit into um, some of the work that we specifically did uh, at the Warrior Camp, but as well uh, within the events that you hold, Ubud Fight Club. Yeah. And, you know, what I observed was ultimately as well within you, which is as well um, what sparked the curiosity to have you on the show is this beautiful um, coming together of, you know, what I see as the warrior poet, ultimately that ability to, um, you know, stand powerfully, you know, to hold a strong spine and then as well um, assert strength when needed, but at the same time have a level of sensitivity and attunement to what is happening around us. Um, and I think that is definitely something that we've been consistently trained or have been consistently exploring. So I'm curious to hear um, what ultimately inspired you to create this and uh, what, what is the intention or idea behind it? Mm. I think you actually summed it up really nicely. Mm. I mean, the warrior poet, it's such a, it's a cliche, but accurate term. Yeah. Like I love the idea of the warrior poet. I love poetry. I love the soft arts. I love Qigong. I love flowing and I love dance and I love fighting and I love jujitsu and I love punching and I love using my full energy. And those two are, are paradoxical and 
and they always will be, and that's okay. The question for me becomes, what is unexpressed and how can I move into it? Maybe there's a better way to say that. If there's this range of masculinity, I don't want to even get into the feminine side of it yet, but let's say masculinity. I don't see it as feminine arts and masculine arts. Let's call it soft arts and hard arts. So on the masculine, soft arts, there's a huge tradition, as I've mentioned, Qigong, or it could be poetry, or it could be philosophy. And on the strong arts, there's wrestling and warriorship and power. I love being able to play up and down that scale. And I love being able to help men move up and down that scale. I love being able to move men that are really, really strong into a soft and vulnerable space. And I love being able to help guys that are always in a soft, vulnerable space stand with more power. Does it make you a better man to be able to play that whole range? I have no idea. Mm. I think the reason to do this is if you feel there's something missing. And that was my genesis. Just going deeply down into this yoga realm, let's say, I felt there was a part of me missing. And that when I played up here, that part felt fulfilled. If I just play up here in the scale, then I also feel something's missing. Right. So for me, there's this value in moving up and down. Yeah. No, that's really beautifully put. And what I see as well for myself is that there is different, you know, distinct needs that I personally have for myself where there's particular nutrients that are asking to be nourished or to be mm -hmm. met and if i only play in one realm um you know one aspect of me becomes more overemphasized or overexpressed whereas the other one becomes more underexpressed or underemphasized mm -hmm. uh which kind of leads to perhaps this perception that there's something wrong something is missing um whereas we may not realize there is just a particular expression of ourselves um that we may not be tapping into um, the other thing as well that I see as so incredibly valuable of experiencing or being able to express more range is the way I express it in my own life is it provides actually more confidence mm -hmm. in being able to respond to what's the situation or what the, my environment is ultimately asking of me. Right? There is particular moments where I may need to assert myself. I may need to express a boundary. I may um, need to hold strong to whatever is you know, appearing in front of me. However, in other moments when I'm you know, with my intimate partner, when I'm um, you know, in, a, in a position where I would want to provide deeper safety, trust, attunement, um, it does require me to explore more of those softer elements as you communicated. And I think an inability to switch between those, um, that actually ultimately creates more, more difficulties in our lives. Yeah, I mm. totally, totally agree. I mean, it was interesting at, at the warrior camp, you know, we had Joff and Joff, he was a participant, but he was a professional boxer. He had 49 yeah. fights and... Uh, 49 amateur fights and four pro fights, which is just a shit ton of boxing. Like, yep. He's a very skilled boxer. Absolutely. Far beyond my own skill, far beyond Jan's skill too. And before we started, we just, before we even got into the retreat, we're sitting around the dinner table, and I forget who said this, but the the statistics of Joff came out that he was a professional fighter, and one of the guys was like, whoop, don't want to fight him. Yeah. And he was joking-ish, but it misses the point of anyone there, he's the man I most want to fight. Mm. Not 
because he's safer to me. Mm. You know? Someone that doesn't know how to fight, you spar with them, it's way less safe than somebody that actually knows how to handle himself. Yeah. Because they have some control and they have some sense of mastery about them. Yeah. It's the it's the opposite. So I think even Peterson says that the weak man is a dangerous man. Mm. And I get that. Yeah. Because if you can't trust yourself in those situations, if you lose your sit, if you lose control, if you use too much force or too little force, if you don't know the boundaries of your own force when it really matters, it's really hard to deeply trust yourself. Yes. And if you don't deeply trust yourself and your own limits, it's hard for other men and for women to trust you. Yeah. That's really beautifully put in. What it actually reminds me of is an experience I had roughly a year ago when I was uh, exploring jujitsu, you know, mm -hmm. my first few times. And I as well, I was um, with another individual um, where we were in combat ultimately. And he was as well a beginner like me. And I could feel that there was a level of, I'm going to say as well, danger present in this experience. And uh, there was a particular move that he brought in where he didn't understand the full magnitude of the force that he was bringing in ultimately almost popped out my shoulder. Right. Uh, you know, whereas with other individuals who are very practiced, who are very experienced, they have an ability to, yes, be forceful and, uh, you know, to put me into places where I'll tap out. However, there is a level of safety that is connected to that where with that particular individual, I couldn't feel that safety because, you know, the way I'd frame it is he didn't even like know himself within that particular art. Totally. And that is very transferable, I think. Mm. So if you take uh, you as a stimulus and him as his response, his response was greater than the stimulus warranted. Mm. So in a, in a jiu-jitsu setting, that's very clear. But what if it's a bar setting when someone's getting aggressive? Yep. It's the same thing on a central nervous system. Yep. He gets a certain stimulus. Now, what is his response? If he doesn't know the edges of his own response and his own capacity, he might respond with too much mm. or too little. Mm. But if you have somebody that's a professional fighter that's in a bar fight, they barely ever actually get into fights. And when they do, it's generally very measured and yep. very well-rounded. The same thing happens when you're in relationship. Mm. So whether you're with your partner, with your woman, and she comes at you, and that can feel much more forceful than an armbar like, to your central nervous system. Absolutely. And is your response, is it using your size and your aggression, which is an over response, or is it a massive shutdown? Is it too much or is it too little? It's the same thing. It's all in the context of training for me. Yeah. And, you know, just hearing that as well, there's another experience that came up for me a few years ago where I was actually with a partner who, with whom I'd regularly, let's say, have heated arguments. And it was very humbling for me to be in that relationship because I wasn't aware of the anger inside of me huh. that was unexpressed and that was still very suppressed. Mm. And there was regular moments where she would ask us to pause and for me to take a breath because she would notice my anger however i didn't how did it how did how did it go down for you when she asked you to pause and take a breath was it could you receive it or yes it? i could receive it every, I, I believe i could receive it every time it was very challenging for it's me a to tough do tough pill to swallow in the it moment is, even if you know it's right yeah it's a tough thing to swallow in the moment. very very hard to do it was yeah. very humbling for me because ultimately what it spoke to is that i don't have myself under control you know yeah. so there was something about it that was very humiliating yeah. i'm gonna say you know, however, it was as well, um, very illuminating in the sense that it 
um, exposed to me how disconnected I was from my anger. Yeah. And how I, I needed to ultimately build uh, a more integrative relationship to my anger and understand it on a better level, which is ultimately the journey that I went on, you know, after that relationship ended. Right. Yeah. It comes back to the selective numbing thing. Like a lot of guys have the suppressed anger that bubbles up or never even gets to the point of which it bubbles up because anger is one of those things that's been branded not okay, right? So why would it be okay? That and the fact that it is a misconception for most men around the root energy of anger. Mm. The root energy of anger isn't angry or violent. Well, it's not violent. It's just very, very powerful. So if that root energy can be transferred and directed in a different, more healthy way, it's alivening, it's beautiful, it's releasing, it's cathartic. But if it gets shut down as bad because that root energy is anger, instead of anger being a result of that root energy, well, you never have the chance to experience it. And if you don't have the chance to experience that, there's a lot of life force, there's a lot of joy, there's a lot of pleasure. Um, that you're missing out on because this one's tamped down, therefore the other one is too. Yeah. I want to share with you um, an experience I actually had one and a half years ago uh, where I started getting ex- more exposed to the work that you guys were doing. Mm. I actually um, hired Jan for a session mm. together and where we combined boxing and coaching. And uh, at that time, I was going through you know a breakup with that particular individual that you know I was, I was speaking about. And I was in a very depressive state. Mm. You know, and I was a very... I'm gonna say shame-filled space, feeling very cut down and humiliated by, you know, ultimately everything um, that appeared within that relationship. And it was very interesting for me when I went into the boxing ring with Jan, hmm. because around three rounds in, I started spontaneously laughing. <laughs> And it was very interesting for me because it it felt like the boxing ring gave me an access point to ultimately touch that aspect of me, touch um, that primal energy that you're communicating. Um, Not necessarily the anger in that moment, but I mean, there was maybe a bit of anger, you know, there was definitely a bit of anger, Uh, some, some of that anger and the power and there, there was a there was a joy there, there was a if there was a liberation that actually came from that experience like there is a primal wild aspect of me that i have disregarded that i've shunned away for so many years and it's actually now getting an opportunity to express itself yes totally totally that's our experience a lot when we lead, lead men through transformational combat mm. it's um you know most men, unless they've been in fight in the fighting world already, are secretly terrified of being punched in the face or not so secretly. And once it happens, almost always the response is, let's do that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and one distinct experience came um, up for me right now where we had, you know, one particular exercise where we were in the ring, um, all of us ultimately, and we were fighting particular individuals. And then um, when one person leaves, ultimately we're asked to, you know, just tap on another individual and start boxing with them. And it was the moment when I left the ring and I was just observing the individuals uh, who were still in uh, it was just so beautiful to witness how there was such a 
joy and just punching each other in the face. Um, and, you know, still coming from a rather, from a place of companionship yeah. versus attempting to hurt each other, if that makes sense. A hundred percent. It's a, it's a difference between learning how to fight and transformational combat. So learning how to fight is really, really valuable, but most gyms don't work on the energetic and confrontational level. When you come to do one of the trainings with us, it's not actually about learning to become a great boxer because that doesn't happen in four days, right? Yep. You learn some basics, but what it's about is how you show up under some of the most intense stimulus that you'll ever have. So how do you learn? You can learn spaciousness when you sit down and meditate, mm -hmm. right? And that's great, but you can also think about your breakfast, mm. right? Same with yoga. When you box, if you're thinking about your breakfast and you're going to punch in the face, you have like a, you have an immediate reminder that you're not present to what is going on. Mm. So there's a real test of how can I stay present and spacious in the midst of this intense stimulus where my first reaction is either going to be to can go overwhelmingly into fight or overwhelmingly into freeze or overwhelmingly into fawn. Um, and once you experience that and you stay in it, especially with guidance, the difference with what we're doing is that it's very clear from the outset that you're there to fight for your fellow brother and not against him. Mm. Boxing gyms, there can be a bit of that, but often you're still trying to compete. If you're an actual fighter, then you're always trying to compete. But what's it like to actually box with someone and box in a way that gives them something, that gifts them something? Mm. And that's when the smiles come out. Because you punch someone in the face and they're like, <laughs> and then they punch you back. And it's um, it's a joyous thing to observe. Yes. And that was, you know, that, that sentence, we're here to fight for our brothers, not against them. That was one of the first sentences that you guys brought yeah. into that training. Um, and it, it's definitely a very... I'm going to say thought reversing a way of seeing things, right? Yeah. Because within a particular experience such as that, it, it can be natural that, you know, from a survival point of view that we're there to, you know, tear that man down, you know, in combat, in fight. But what what is it like to actually flip the narrative and come from a place of, I'm here to sharpen my brother, right? I'm here to um, bring him to his edge, but I, I'm not here to um, weaken him or to make him smaller, but actually to help him rise and to strengthen him ultimately. Yeah, and and their own experience of fighting for most men, again, unless they've done training, is the opposite. Most men that have gone into a street fight, uh, usually the most humiliating and emasculating times in, in men's life is when they've been beaten or bullied. Absolutely. Followed by incidences with women in the bedroom. Like they're the kind of two big chain points that I notice. So most of the time the men have got into a fight that's not in a container. They've either been ashamed of how badly they hurt the other guy mm. or how badly they've been dominated. Right. So that lives in their body. We've had guys that, you know, in middle school that have had these deep, deep experiences and that's what lives in their bones. So to come into it, it really is a flipping of the script. Yeah. And, and it's a, I think it's a massive test of human spirit to have your body not to react how your body first wants to react when you mm -hmm. first get into the ring and instead breathe and come back to that space of fighting for the man. Yeah. yeah, it's beautifully put. And, you know, just from my own personal experiences, I was one of those guys who was bullied in, you know, high school, middle school. And um, it was definitely my initial response. Um, 
Which one? To kind of come more from a position of, all right, I need to protect myself right now, or I need to, uh, you know, put my armor up, you know, and I need to um, hurt this man, yeah. right? I think I think that is kind of that position that I came from because in past positions of being bullied, I was dominated yeah. into submission ultimately. And I think one of the biggest shame points that has always been present for me growing up is that I'm a coward mm-hmm. and that... Um, I'm not able to stand up for myself. And there has been multiple experience after those events of being bullied where, you know, I was ultimately choking because I couldn't speak up because my nervous system, you know, was so wired into, it does not feel safe. Yeah. It is not safe for me to communicate this thing. It's not safe for me to stand up for myself. And so, which is why I believe, you know, these experiences are so First of all, they're so unique, but as well so essential in the sense of rewiring that um, experience, the narrative around the experience that we've had in the past yeah. and really shaping a new way forward. Totally, totally. I'm curious to hear, what do you see as most challenging for men? Is it more that um, connecting to their power, connecting to that sense of innate primal energy, or is it more tapping into the sensitivity, the the vulnerability, the um, yeah aspects of themselves that they may not want to expose to others? It's totally conditional on the man. Hmm. Where they're at in life and where they're at age-wise as well makes a difference. Mm-hmm. But particularly just where they're at, every man will need a different alchemy to address because they'll be at a different place along that scale. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, have you observed any like patterns or like anything distinct around that? As a general rule, um, I would say at either end of the spectrum, it's very challenging for men to speak from vulnerability without collapse. Hmm. So the the guy that's all the way up and the like that. What's the difference? Just to clarify for our listeners. Yeah, uh, there's so few examples of it in 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 culture. So we have, uh, you know, when I was growing up, it was Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sly Stallone, and now it's more, I guess, Vin Diesel or that kind of archetype who never shows any vulnerability and they kill whatever gets in their way, right? right. So there's no example of what it's like to be. It's only that's only strength. There's no softness to it. It's not realistic. And then you, the other example we had, I had growing up was like Chandler. <laughs> and then we had more of the 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 yogi, flowy type, be with the feelings. And there was not a lot that went in between. Yep. The only real example I can think of, that's a, in in movies. Have you seen Gladiator? I have absolutely. I think this is a great example. So there's a moment where you got this character that's. Uh, Uber classically masculine, he's strong, he's a warrior, he inspires loyalty, he's respectful, he, uh, he has a strong sense of morality to him. And there's a moment that he's standing there and tears are just totally streaming down his face. But he's not collapsed into it and he's not plastering over it and he's not pushing through it. He's fully feeling that thing with his full belly and with his strong spine. Hmm. Yeah. What arises for me is that I think I see a similar theme as well of when I hold breathwork circles, Mm -hmm. you know, when I see individuals breathing, they may 
prop over the response that they're having to ultimately um, hide away what they're maybe experiencing, mm. or they ultimately fall into that experience so deeply that they have lost, you know, complete ground or complete center the, to that experience. Neither of those ultimately allows them to, I'm going to say, authentically be in relationship to that experience of what they're having. Mm. Um, but actually it requires that that middle way ultimately. Yeah. So w- one thing that I'm really curious to hear more about is so in, within some of the work that you as well do uh, in relationships, I would love to actually pivot more into that uh, sure. conversation. Um, I would love to hear, first of all, what are like some of the main things that you um, work on? I, I'm aware that you're as well working with your wife yeah. around that. Yeah, we uh, we do couples coaching and we do lead retreats for couples. And I would say the main area that we work on is intimacy. So we work with sex and sexuality. We also work with communication, but really we use coming together intimately, physically, to explore as a microcosm that expands and and shows up everything else is going up in relationship. What do you see as some of the main challenges that usually present themselves? I say the main challenging, the challenge is just that relationships are fucking hard. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no one in the history, no one in the history of humankind has said relationships that are easy. You know, relationships are just hard. So the, the, the challenge, the main challenge is just that they are hard. You can get more granular and go, well, what are some of the, the more main patterns that you notice? And and for us, because we work within the intimacy realm, well, it's, it's couples turning into more friends than to lovers. Mm. For whatever reason, it's one couple feeling hurt and resentful and not expressing it, usually from initiating and not being received. It's um, the massive taboo around sexuality that has neither of the people involved asking for what they want mm-hmm. and just suffering along with whatever they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. And it's the cultural narrative that um, sex and intimacy just dies down over time. So if you're not being intimate for weeks or months on end, then it's just... Normal. Hmm. And based on, you know, those challenges that present themselves within, you know, couples, I'm curious to hear what are, what are you ultimately supporting them and educating them on? How to touch, how to be touched, Hmm. how to receive, how to be received. Mm -hmm. And on a more practical level, we're educating them on just how you navigate living a full life yeah. with work and kids and still maintain a strong practice of intimacy. Mm-hmm. Even the idea of a practice of intimacy is new for most couples. Yeah. Tell me more about what that would look like. Mm. So it looks like, okay, you want to learn a guitar. You don't pick up and sound like Santana. You pick up a guitar and you practice a chord and you keep practicing a chord and you keep practicing until you can play that chord. And you play another chord. And you keep on doing this until you can string a few chords together. And that can take a while. To play like Santana can probably take a few lifetimes. When it comes to intimacy, for some reason, it gets put into a different category where we don't think of it as a practice. Whereas every other physical thing that we do, like to hire a a PT, a personal trainer, to hire a business coach, to hire a life coach, to spend time and money and effort on your business and hobbies and personal life is really normal. To do the same for intimacy 
is just there's some shroud of tabooness which has couples not even think about it. So what a practice looks like is going, actually, there's a whole world of things that we can practice to feel closer to one another. I'm not talking about just sex, though sex is part of it. So that has both couples living their lives and then also realizing that when that their intimacy and relationship is really worth cultivating. And therefore, you don't just make love, you don't just become intimate when you both feel like it. Therefore, you go, hey, this week, when are we going to come together as a practice? Mm. And probably not the best result is, hmm, how about at the end of the day, after a really big day and after a full <laughs> meal, when there's nothing interesting on Netflix at 11 p.m. at night, that's a recipe for disaster. It's probably more like we're going to be 3 p.m. on a Tuesday, mm. 8 a.m. on a Friday. Mm. And then you come together to look at a part of what intimacy is, and then you practice that part. Oh, we have a chord. Then you practice another part. Yeah. And then you can make music. Yeah. I, I really love this idea of like really coming together with it in, in, intentionally because I think there can be a narrative around it's supposed to show up spontaneously. <laughs> and, you know, wrong one. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, it's supposed to just happen. And the idea of making it a practice is perhaps initially seen as rather unsexy. It's very confrontation to a lot of people. <laughs> And most couples or most relationships die waiting for spontaneity. Yeah. Hmm. I'm curious, how do love, intimacy come together with attraction and desire? Because the way I've learned it from, you know, particular individuals and teachers as well, um, what has been really helpful for me is to actually recognize those are, to a certain degree, opposing forces yeah. that are at a particular tension. I'm curious to hear if you hold that same idea and um, how... How would you communicate that? Well, they're kind of diametrically opposed. Mm. Uh, love requires trust and reliability, and attraction requires a newness and variety, mm. which is why it's you have this puppy love stage or the yep. early sexy stage where everything's new and everything's exciting. Yep. It's less exciting once you know what your partner sounds like when they poop. <laughs> you know, when you know the way that they act and the way that they move, mm. there is very naturally uh, a difference in attraction. And the problem isn't that. The problem is most people haven't reoriented themselves to what attraction looks like in long-term relationship because we've never had a model for it. Mm. And the only model we really have is either our parents or culture. And in culture, movies show boy meets girl, they have a problem, they overcome it, they're very sexy and passionate and love. But the movie doesn't go for the next 40 years. Mm. You just see that first bit. On top of that, you have your lived experience. So newness and variety. Well, the first time that you started masturbating was very new and very exciting. You discover porn, very new, very exciting. First time you're with new lovers, that fumbling amazingness and, and your body learns, ah, sexiness, it has something to do with this flavor, is sexy, it's new and it's exciting. And then, then maybe it peters out and you break up with them and you find a new partner or even just the act of finding a new partner is new and exciting. So again, then you find a new partner and it's all new again. So it's sexy and exciting. So what happens over years of doing this over and over again is that you have a wiring in your body that newness equals exciting. It lives in the muscles and it lives in the bones. And this is a real challenge if you expect it to always feel like that because it won't for the aforementioned reasons. So the question becomes, well, what do you do about it? And what I believe is 
as a couple, you have to come together and create a new erotic vision. Mm. You have to understand why it's important to be intimate. It's not just a stress release. It's not just a sleeping pill. It's not just because you need to have intimacy. Actually, when I have a strong practice with my wife, I feel really powerful and I feel really deeply in myself. If my day's been really stressful and we come together and I and we make love or we have a practice, afterwards I feel powerful and I feel connected and I feel I can take over the world. And she feels like my teammate. She doesn't feel like somebody that's opposing. So all of a sudden, it's not do we watch Netflix tonight instead of making love. It goes, actually, do you want to feel powerful and like a team and want to take over the world? Yeah. And if that's the case, then what's required is a plan to get there. And the way to get there is through practice. Mm. But it's a new erotic room, vision that's required, not tips and tricks. Mm -hmm. It's not 10 things to do with an ice cube. It's actually how do we orientate our life towards a deeper understanding of what attraction is. And the last thing I'll say on this rant is that once you go down the route, it's an endless potential for pleasure and power yeah. because instead of going broad you go deep and there's so much to uncover how would an individual who's very new to all of this perhaps start to bring elements of a practice of intentionally you know coming together with their partner what could that look like i think the very first step would be to include your partner in the conversation yeah be like hey i really want to feel closer to you hmm. i really want to have my body near your body regularly yeah. um, and I want to practice becoming a better lover with you. Mm. Are you open to it? And if they are, then you put something in the calendar. Yeah. And from there, it can help to read, listen to podcasts, to get a coach, to go to trainings. Sure. How do you usually navigate it when perhaps, as you've already mentioned, when resentment builds up or when there's maybe a lack of connection, a lack of maybe even safety to open up because, you know, from my own experiences as well. and being intimate with partners when the lack of safety is present, there is not usually an openness to be intimate. Yeah. Um, the way that we handle it and the way that we teach it is that we create a container to speak to the feeling that's underneath. Mm. And it's uh, perhaps too complex to go into in a, in a conversation. Maybe if Megan was here, we could demonstrate it. But basically when resentment build up, it is it can be really challenging to open up. And there's different types of resentments, but if it's something deeper causing a closure, um, then there's ways that you can speak to what the Irish would call the river beneath the river, hmm. the hurt that's underneath the thing. Because it's almost never about that. The biggest argument I ever got to Megan, into, one of the biggest I ever got into Megan over was that I used the wrong sarong on the massage table. <laughs> and it was one of our, it turned spined into one of our largest, deepest, most painful arguments. Of course, it was nothing to do with this wrong. Hmm. I'm, I'm curious to hear what was the actual, if you're open to sharing, what was the actual pain point underneath it that was attempting to be communicated with the conversation around the sarong? If I remember correctly, the pain point was that Megan wasn't feeling seen or witnessed and appreciated. Right. And the fact that I used her ceremonial sarong instead of a regular sarong was the camels, the straw that broke the camel's back. Yep. So then she lashed out from a very hurt place. Mm. And her lashing out um, hurt me. And like most men, the feeling is kind of like, uh, 
I don't know what I did. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I did here. I just, I just used the sarong. I, Sorry. what do you, I can use a different, you know, I'm trying to argue logically without actually realizing what's going on. It's a totally different conversation. So mostly with couples, if we're coaching them, we guide them to the second conversation, the one underneath. Um, and then we give them structure and containers where they can speak to the second conversation. And there needs to be a container because otherwise it just spirals out. Yeah. Now hearing that, I feel that there's a lot of gifts that can actually uh, reveal themselves from even such a conflict because it exposes particular needs or particular desires that are present for the individual yeah. um, that they may not even be able to consciously express uh, until the pain point, you know, is there, you know, which is maybe wanting to be appreciated, wanting to be seen in a particular way. Um, and, and those arguments can actually bring those to the surface so they can actually intentionally be worked on. Yeah, I think relationship is or can be the deepest form of spiritual growth mm. because you come together in these complex jigsaws that, like have you ever just noticed that your partner knows exactly what to say to piss you off? Like, and there's a very clear reason for that. Like it's all to do with childhood. Mm. So you happen to have this partner that knows how to do or say the one thing that just drives you crazy. And if you're like most couples in the world, you just work with a coping mechanism. You'll numb it out. You won't look at it. You'll come into some kind of behavior that, you know, for want of a better word, is a toxic dynamic between the two of you. Mm. If you instead decide to go into it and work with it for this exact reason you're speaking of, it has the potential to be the catalyst to grow deeply. You have the capacity within it to have these old triggers seen and approached in a new way that's extraordinarily healing mm. i can give you two examples please one is and most couples there's one person that goes towards conflict and there's one person that goes away from conflict yep. i am the latter mm. i went away from conflict so a lot of my journey is being able to go into conflict at the beginning with megan who loves going into conflict <laughs> uh she would come at me pretty intensely and she would notice somewhere that I've, my limit has been reached and gone over because I begin to get cold and I begin to shut down and I don't know what to do. Right. And halfway through that, if she noticed this, she would do something magnificent. She would wink at me. But Megan can't wink. So she does this kind of... <laughs> <laughs> and just that, in that moment, is enough to... <clears throat> oh, this isn't life or death, which is what something very old in me was saying yep. it's actually um a chance to practice yeah it's a chance to be there there was space brought into it so that's one beautiful example because over and over and over again suddenly my system has a new story to work with yeah the other one which is where sex and intimacy gets to turn into real magic i grew up with a very very strong uh narrative of the gentlemanly good guy mm. so i didn't have a lot of I didn't bring forward a lot of dark energy. Mm. This, of course, translates to the bedroom because it's a microcosm. What some man and won't realize is that most women crave a dark, powerful energy when it's held with um, skill and constraint to some level. It's mm -hmm. very, very erotic for most women. And in the container, in this particular container with Megan and I, there was space to practice this energy. 
she was aware of what was going on. I was aware of what's going on. So in the bedroom, we have moments where I can go into this powerful dark force that lives within me, express it in uh, an intimate lovemaking or otherwise, and that 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 ripples through the rest of my day. It's not like, oh, we have this two, three hour practice and that's it. No, I have that feeling now in my body. I have an aliveness in my body mm-hmm. that I can then take out into the world as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's beautifully put and, you know, as well reflecting on some experiences with my past partners, it's been where I've started exploring, you know, bringing some of these darker energies as well into um, the bedroom. I saw the value of that as well going into um, my workday, you know, or ultimately going into a conversation where I needed to be more directional or I needed to um, provide or bring more leadership. That ability to be received in that way. I think I think that was the big thing for me, yeah. you know, to be received and to be said, yeah, that part of you is welcome. I want that part of you. Exactly. It circles back around a little bit to, is it okay to be a man? Right. Right. Do I have to apologize for this thing? Because mm. that thing lives there. And then you have a partner that's willing to receive it. Yeah. Not only receive it, but the receiving of it creates joy and erotic pleasure. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's a healing bomb. Yeah. I heard you at times speak about this idea of creating virtuous cycles in relationships. I'm curious to hear um, what would that look like in a relationship? Like what are some of the uh, principles that you bring in to ultimately create virtuous cycles? Sure. Virtuous cycle is doing things um, around and for your partner that create a, a good vibe, let's call it. Uh, vicious cycle is one that's of complaint and it brings you down. Virtuous cycle brings you up. So to answer the question, a vicious cycle would be complaining about your partner to them or to somebody else. That very really, like, um, you never buy me flowers. Or they come home with red roses. I don't like red roses. That's even worse. But you never buy me flowers. Cindy's boyfriend buys her flowers all the time. That is not an inspirational way to encourage gifting, right? For example... Complaining about everything, one person complains, the other person complains, the other person complains. It brings both of you down. Uh, A victorious cycle is the exact opposite. So it's expressing appreciation and gratitude to them, around them. If there are other people around them, it's even better if you're with friends and you get to brag about your partner. It's a really beautiful thing. And there's many ways to do this. Um, a, A structured way that we have is we call it GADS, gratitude, appreciation, and desire. So we did this every day for many years, and now we do it, not every day, but probably every second or third day. It's three gratitudes, three things we're grateful for about in general. It's three appreciations about your partner, something specific and how it made you feel, and then three desires. So a desire you want to do for yourself, a desire you'd love to see for your partner, and something you'd want to do together. And this is just a very small practice, but... After our retreats, it's funny. It's it's one of the ones that really sticks for people. Hmm. And what a virtuous cycle does, fan the flames of intimacy. Most couples feel that once they feel good or their partner feel good or they're appreciating or they're not doing that annoying thing and uh, the kids are asleep or there's nothing on Netflix, then we're going to be intimate. Once I get away from this thing, then we can be intimate without realizing that Intimacy breeds intimacy. Hmm. So if I'm appreciating what your appreciate appreciates, 
So I appreciate my partner. I show gratitude. I show love. They feel close to you. You feel close to them. And naturally, you're going to want to be more intimate with your partner. And it bleeds this upward spiral. I love that. I love that. I One phrase as well that really has supported me on my own journey is exploring this idea of generosity and, and being generous with my capacity to love my partner. Even in those moments when um, a part of me wants to maybe naturally withhold. Right? <laughs> there, there can be this subtle expression of maybe wanting to use control or wanting to use power by withholding my expression of love in this moment. And there, there, there may be this perception of, oh, okay, I, I can get my partner to do this particular thing mm -hmm. if I just withhold love. However, um, th there can, what often is missed perhaps is uh, how damaging that can ultimately be in the relationship. Even if the partner does well, what it is that you desire to do, ultimately what it like, leads to is that, you know, I can trust myself with that person. Totally. You know, during the um, retreat that we did, you brought up a very interesting conversation around um, wounds and how men's work to you um, is ultimately about exposing those wounds and learning how to wield or hold those wounds more effectively. And um, we may not be able to heal all of the wounds that we carry um, within this lifetime. And it's ultimately about, you know, with our children or let's say with our family to consciously pass those on. Yeah. I'm curious to hear, like, t tell me more about that. Oh, it's such a good conversation. Um, it was Bioacom and Alfie that first mm. turned me on to this. At least the, his way of thinking about it, it tends to be a little bit different. Our... So I think it's particularly interesting for fathers, though it's interesting for all men. I think there are a couple of different types of wounds that we can have or ways to deal with them. The first is wounds that we don't know we have and we may never know we have. The second is wounds uh, that we know we have and we can actually heal. And the third is the wounds that we know that we have that actually we can't heal in our lifetime. It's just something that we live with. Those are the ones that David Data would say, the best thing that you can do is to have a sense of humor with them. And when it comes to, to your kids, those are the ones that you want to like pick up, pass them over, and maybe even dig a, a knife and stir them up a little bit to be like, hey, this is a thing. I've tried really hard, but actually I don't, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. I don't have capacity to do this. So it becomes a wound for them that they're aware of. It doesn't go into the category <laughs> of total unawareness and it gives them a chance to to do something with it from awareness and not from a hidden shadow. Yeah, beautifully put. And within the retreat as well, you shared a like a wonderful story that really stuck with me, um, which ultimately highlighted the importance of having those wounds and how they actually bring intimacy and connection and community. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, my uh, my nickname from my first spiritual teacher was Teflon. Teflon. I think I mentioned this at the retreat. <laughs> you did, yeah. Just because everything slid off. It refers to what I said before on my first yoga teacher training. It's because I was so 
poised and so structured and so eloquent in what I was saying because it was all fucking rehearsed that nobody could stick to me. And this part of me wanted connection and closeness and, and, and to some level of adoration. So I thought the more perfect I could be, the more people are going to adore me and like me and want to be around me, which is the total opposite because nobody wants to be around somebody that's perfect. There's no humanness in them, right? It's really hard to have deep connection when you have the 20 ton shield of perfectionism. What then went for the next decade and continues to this day, because it's still something that's alive in me, is, is, is releasing that shield of perfectionism, is allowing myself to be messy. It's allowing myself to not know what to say and not know what to do <coughs> and for that to be okay. It's allowing, it's allowing others, others to see my fears, which are my weaknesses. Hmm. I'm curious to hear if, you know, based on what you said before around the three, let's, I'm going to call them stages of wounds. <laughs> if that is a wound that you're able, do you believe that this is one that you're able to heal within this lifetime? What are your thoughts on that? Yes, I think I can, I think I've made huge progress in releasing that shield. So there's yeah. this wound of protectionism. And it, it, it'll be degrees, so I don't know whether I'll ever be a fully open, messy, bleeding heart. Sure. Um, but yes, now, can I heal the things that caused the need for protection? Right. I don't think so. Yeah. I think maybe the best thing I can do is a sense of humor. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, I can very much relate to that pattern of perfectionism, and I would say it's my biggest pattern, you know, mm -hmm. around not wanting to reveal um, particular aspects of me. And I think the way how it often portrays itself for me is a rather coldness sometimes yeah. or yeah. being more distant. Aloof. Yeah. And um, I, think, I think there is this maybe subconscious kind of like way of going about it that if I don't show up in this moment or if i don't expose myself then um, people will not see that i am human just as they are i'm imperfect as they are mm -hmm. um, and it kind of keeps that perhaps illusion of i can be perfect in some way alive um, so it was very interesting as well for me to consistently drill into that particular aspect of me within that training i remember one uh, distinct moment when jan and i were paired up and I don't actually remember the exercise that we did, but um, there was a moment when he paused me actually, and he ultimately spoke to, you know, me being so serious. Mm. And he kind of just, it wasn't in a way where he was judging me, but it was like, just smile, man, just have fun, you know, just be playful. Yeah, and it was, it was a moment where I was like, something in me just loosened up. Yeah, I remember. And there was something about it that was just so, I'm gonna say liberating because, ah, okay, my humanness is being asked for. My humanness is actually welcomed here in this moment and it's okay. Yeah, and I remember this moment and I also remember what happened next, which was another man went and a man that was a participant was uh, good-naturedly giving the man advice mm. and they said, smile more. And actually, I don't know if it was Jan or I think mm. it was Jan said, no, not for this man. Because mm -hmm. the man after you, that wasn't the medicine that was needed in the moment. Yeah. Right. And yeah. in your case, this was the medicine that was needed in the moment. Totally. Yeah. 
very interesting how, yeah, you know, we all kind of carry our own distinct blueprints and uh, with that require different things. Totally. I mean, I've worked with men where it's the exact opposite thing, where it's stop smiling. Mm. And as soon as I've been in the ring with a man that was smiling, because it's a fawn response, yeah. fawn meaning like pleasing response, yep. he started crying. Mm. Right? That's what was behind that smile. I know one of the aspects that you work on uh, is supporting individuals unveiling their genius. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Um, unveiling their superpowers. Yeah. So, yeah, as we're starting to wind down the conversation here, um, I would love to maybe just explore, you know, I'm curious to hear if there's anything that you'd have to say to that man who is maybe questioning, is it okay, first of all, for me to be a man, but as well, am I needed, you know? Because I think that's a big narrative that a lot of men hold, that, you know, I'm not needed here anymore. Yeah, I think the darkest days for a lot of men, a lot of men where they feel like they're not giving anything of yeah. service in the world. Um, well, first of all, you are needed. Uh, and... It requires poetic license, this conversation, this part of the conversation. And I feel like, can I preface it? Please. Okay. So there's a lot of men in relationship, like I was at a point of time that had a lot of trouble fully committing by saying something, I'll love you forever. I'll be with you forever. Because the rational brain goes, well, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen next week which is very logistically true. So that's the language of logistics. What it requires, love and romanticism requires the language of poetry. So it may not be, I'm gonna love you forever. It may be, uh, I'm gonna love you as long as there's water in the oceans. I'm gonna love you longer than the longest living tree on earth. You know, I'm gonna love you to the heavens fall it's somehow more true because you're expressing the truth of the moment in a way that narrates the logistical brain. Speaking about genius is a similar thing. There's so many beautiful myths and expressions of this idea of the daimon, um, your genius walking beside you and what you have to give the world. And I find it's a much deeper conversation to imagine your diamond and to explore your life through that lens than it is to say, what's my purpose? I think after being stuck in the what's my purpose trap for years, it's a really fucking dangerous question. Mm. And it's deeply embedded in men's work. I think much more interesting is to go, what are you interested in? What lights you up? What times in your life have you felt most connected to go on universe like literally write down the moments in your life where you got out of your way the most and felt in flow the most then go through your life and look at your hardest moments that you've managed to come out stronger and write out what you learned from that or what values you've instilled from those moments and suddenly your life isn't a individual happening of experiences. There's these threads running through where that thing that you experienced when you were 12 had some similarity to the thing at 18 and at 25 and 30 when you felt most connected. Mm -hmm. And that difficult time that you had at eight years old and at 18 years old and 23 year old 
had some magic in it because you came out bitter. And there's some combination in those two things that can act as the guiding star, not for what you're going to do, but what your gifts are. Mm. And then those gifts can be applied in many, many different ways. Yeah. Beautiful. So I'm hearing a coupling of a thing that excites you, maybe your passion, if, if you can call it as such. Um, but then as well... Um, I think it's different. Okay, tell me more. I don't think it's what excites you or what your passion is. I think there's a distinction between that and when you feel most connected. Mm. So uh, it really excites me to go bungee jumping. I fucking love bungee jumping. I don't plan to do that as my my, sure. my thing. Yeah, that's, that's... It, it might excite a guy to go surfing. I would say Kelly Slater had a pretty good genius in surfing. It's mm. probably not most men. So it's not excitement or happy. Uh, it's the moment you feel most out of your own way and in flow. And it's not what happened before and it's not what happened after. Because like, I'll give you an example. For me, it's facilitation. And I can remember being 12 years old and in a school play with, a, with an audience and just being totally at home. And then my first job was in front of, first real job was speaking in front of three to 500 people every single week for months on end. And I just felt at home before and after I criticized the shit out of myself. But in those moments, something comes through and I'm out of my own way. Mm. So it's not excited. It's most connected to insert your spiritual verb. Yeah. <laughs> Source, God, universe. Yeah. I love that. And I think as well, like I'm very happy as well. I kind of made that remark. So you kind of corrected me with that because I think there was a lot of value just in that. Awesome. And then the other aspect I'm hearing is as well, kind of exploring the aspects of wounding. You know, exploring the aspects where you got hurt and ultimately where you came out on the other side. Yeah. 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 hundred percent. Because then, then you are uniquely gifted in helping people that have gone through a similar experience. Yeah. Nice. I love it. All right. Well, we're slowly winding down with this conversation. And first of all, I just want to thank you for coming on. And I feel there was a, there was a broad, um, you know, range of different topics that we discussed, ranging from men's work, our wounds, um, relationships, and then mm -hmm. as well, our genius. So I just want to, first of all, thank you, you know, for the work that you do. Mm. And thank you as well for your commitment to this work. Uh, and uh, I really honor you uh, in that sense that what I really admire is that you really carry, as mentioned, those, um, that ability to hold those different poles, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, ultimately carry that ability to hold strong, but as well carry um, that coupled sensitivity. And I feel there isn't enough yeah, expressions of that, unfortunately, in the world. Thank you, brother. I uh, I deeply enjoyed the conversation and and um, and your unique and insightful questions. I felt it flowed very clearly and smoothly the whole time. Beautiful. Well, I'd have one parting question for you. Sure. Um, so this podcast is called Heart of Man, mm -hmm. and ultimately, the idea behind the podcast was that for most of my life, I was most disconnected from my heart, and sure. so. A pursuit that I'm on is to ultimately explore what is within the heart of man. Mm. So I would love to hear what enlivens you most in your heart and what drives you at your deepest core. Cool. And just one, a, one to two sentences. Question at the end. That's okay. it, bro. Re repeat the question for me. What enlivens you most in your heart uh, and what drives you at your deepest core? Uh... <laughs> okay, the first thing that comes up is... Um, enlivens my deepest heart is is some kind of facilitation or group slash my daughter and my wife mm. 
And what drives me in my deepest core is trauma. <laughs> I didn't expect that one. <laughs> Maybe not my deepest core, but that's the, that's the one that came up. I'd say what drives me at my deepest core um, Yeah, it kind of is trauma. It's kind of a a deep, it's this deep curiosity to expand. Mm. I love that. <laughs> Where can our listeners find you? Uh, on Instagram, though I'm not so active these days, which is james.mattingly, and my website, jamesmattingly.com. Beautiful. And is there any offerings or anything that you would like our listeners to um, know about anything that's coming up? We have another warrior camp already on the books for May next year. And you can find that on my website or on Jan's website. Too. Awesome. Didn't know that you guys are doing another one. Already logged in. Okay, beautiful, man. I'd be curious to come in for a second time. Oh, I'd love to have you. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you all listeners for coming into this podcast today. And until next time, wishing you much love. Thank you for listening to this episode. Your time and attention is truly appreciated. If you enjoyed the show, Make sure to subscribe to stay tuned for my upcoming episodes. And in case you know somebody who would find this episode helpful, I encourage you to pay it forward. Finally, if you've personally been receiving value from the show, one way you're able to support this podcast is by leaving a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Not only does this help more people find the show, but it also supports me in bringing more incredible guests on for the future. I'm your host, Alex Lehman. And until next time, signing off.